But you don't have to necessarily tell me this, but ask yourself this question in your head. Do you ever get that feeling sometimes, like you're just like, man, I want to go home. I just want to go home. <laughs> we done with all this. I don't know, whatever. I'm going home. You might even be home, you know, and you're at home and you're like, I want to go home. <laughs> what does that mean? I think as we look at our text today, Micah chapter 5, see some other folks there that although they're very far removed from our situation, they're having very, very similar feelings. They're in fact in the same setting that we were looking at in Isaiah last week. These are the people of Micah, but the situation is very similar. They've got these Assyrians up uh, north east of them and it's really creating a problem and so what I want to do today is basically uh, set that up we'll read the text and then we'll apply it to your life and just to refresh your memory a little bit before we even read it let me show you a few slides to sort of remind you of the historical context this is how we get there well why do you care Pastor Jeremy because if you don't understand this if you don't understand where they're at in their lives there's really no application for where you're at in your life. You'll just totally bungle it and you'll go the wrong way and it won't be right and you'll end up in a bad spot. I want you to go the right way. <laughs> I want you to follow what God has to say to you. And the way you do that is seeing what he said to them, how he said it, and then apply it to yourself. So just to set it up really fast, just an absolutely basic biblical timeline. Here it is. It begins with creation. God creates the world. And we know that around 6,000 B.C. there was a flood, and around 2,000-ish there's Abraham. 1446, we can date pretty precisely, was the time of the Exodus, given the different uh, kings and or pharaohs that were uh, listed. We can correlate that both biblically and extra-biblically. Then around 1,000, that's a general thing. He started a little before and went after. There's King David. So here's a you know, rush through thousands of years of history. There's King David. That's the united kingdom. That's when Israel's kind of at its height. Well, then there's Solomon. After that, he builds a temple. And then, of course, his son, Rehoboam, um, raises taxes and uh, the kingdom divides. You have north, which is Israel, south, which is Judah, which is where this nation gets their name Jews from because the northern kingdom is taken over first and they're gone. And the only people left are the Jews or the Judahites. So here's a picture of that. I think you've got, yep, awesome. Thank you, guys. Oops, back one. Um, so, the, so Israel split, and this northern kingdom, Israel, is falling to the Assyrians. That's 722 uh, B.C. Then around 701 B.C. is when Isaiah is prophesying to these people here, probably talking to the king Hezekiah as Sennacherib, this Assyrian king, is trying to invade. He's literally at the doorsteps. He's kicking on the door and they're, you know, binding the gates and the Assyrians are laying siege to the cities. That's the situation this is in. By the way, you thought this was a oh, little town of Bethlehem, right? Micah 5 2, isn't it all like beauty and sweet and woohoo? Actually, it's a war. <laughs> So much of your Christmas traditions are hooey, just so you know. <laughs> Most of them are. You know, the Bible never actually says the angels sing. It never says that. It says angels sing, glory to God in the highest. We have no record of the angels singing, by the way. Just so you know. <laughs> I don't know, destroy everything, but there's no such thing, at least in the Bible, as angels singing. 
We have heavenly hosts. Hosts are actually uh, the Hebrew word for armies. So we have angels. You know, those are angels. That's why they say, fear not. Because <laughs> people are like, oh, we're going to die. So anyways, here's a southern kingdom and they're being invaded by these Babylonians. Or sorry, sorry, not to the Babylonians. We're at Assyrians. They don't actually even fall to the Babylon until the Babylonians. But here's what the Assyrians are doing. Here's a picture of their king. He thinks he's the best. You know, it's like most guys, right? I mean, give him too much power, and what do you think? Oh, I'm the most heroic hunter in the world. And they fill your house with taxidermy. I'm the most astounding warrior, and you display your trophies. I am divine! And then all of a sudden, lightning strikes. You know, you can only go so far, and then God will judge you, and worms will spill out of your belly. That's what happens. Look it up. It's in the Bible. I'm telling you the truth. So... Here's these Assyrian kings. There's a heroic hunter, an outstanding warrior, a divine head of state, and they're sucking up as much land as they can. Here's a picture of that. The red, you don't have to know everything there, but the red's the Assyrians, and Israel's right on the eastern bank of the Mediterranean Sea. They want to get down and take Egypt and the Fertile Nile and all that good stuff. So they're just taking over that part of the world. And now you see Isaiah. Next slide. You guys are doing awesome going to King Hezekiah and saying, hey, you're going too. I've already got the northern part of your country. Why are you guys holding out? And what's going to happen, let me just show you a little bit of boasting that Sennacherib dubs. You can actually go to the obelisk in the museum and read his actual words, which correlate to scripture. But anyways, here's, here's what uh, Sennacherib, the Assyrian, says about Hezekiah, this Jew who's in his way. As to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. It's because Isaiah was telling him, don't do it. Um, I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts, and countless small villages in their vicinity and conquered them. Himself I made like a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence like a bird in the cage. <laughs> yeah, you should read what happens to Sennacherib later. Anyways. Then this is some of the pictures he uh, put on his walls. These are impaled prisoners. The men and boys ended up on stakes, and the women and little girls, next slide, were carried away. That's what Assyrians do. Why do you think Jonah didn't like them that much? <laughs> These were not their best friends. You think your neighbors are rough. These guys are not so great. So into this setting, we get... Oh, little town of Bethlehem, you're surrounded by Assyrians. <laughs> you know, you're about to die. <laughs> Here it is, Micah 5, verse 1. This is actually how it goes. Um, you can see now why the prophet is saying this, right? He says, now muster your troops. <laughs> Guys, get ready. Look, oh, daughter of troops, siege is laid against us they're coming they're attacking they are at the front door with a rod they will strike the judge of israel on the cheek that's the king they're going to utterly humiliate the king they're going to destroy us but but you O bethlehem ephrathah who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're not even listed in the um, list of uh, the Old Testament. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose coming forth is of old from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she, that's Israel, who is in labor, has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers, that's Jesus' brothers, shall return to the people of Israel. And he, the Messiah, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Little town of Bethlehem, siege is laid up against you, and you will be utterly humiliated. Merry Christmas. What do you get from that, Pastor Jeremy? Well, it's this. I think the theme of today's message is to accept discipline and difficulty, but dwell in deliverance. Today's theme is to accept discipline and difficulty, accept it, accept it, but dwell in deliverance. Know that there is discipline. Know that there will be difficulty. That is completely unavoidable. Your desire for perfection here on earth is a waste of your effort. Don't sit your hopes on this, on this planet, because you will never be home while you are here. (laughs) You will never get there. You'll always be disappointed. No Christmas is going to be perfect. No birthday is going to be just right. No celebration will give you everything you want. Everything will fall short. Accept discipline and difficulty, but dwell in deliverance. Let me explain a little bit what I mean by that, and then I'll give you an example of someone who does it here in just a minute. But what I mean is this. Let's start first with accepting discipline and difficulty. First of all, uh, discipline and difficulty, aren't those like two different things? Well, yes and no. I mean, sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. You could be experiencing difficulty just from the fact that you're living in a fallen world where uh, sin has come into our presence and therefore with sin comes sickness and death. It doesn't mean if you are sick that you sinned and deserved it, but because you sin, sickness comes and death follows and therefore, yes, do we all deserve it? Yes, because we all sin, but I'm not saying that every sickness correlates to specific sin. So what I am saying, though, is somebody else could sin, and you didn't sin, and it hurts you, and it's not your fault. So you could be the victim, but that would be a difficulty. But what is a discipline? A discipline is when you do something, and your loving father says, no, please don't do that. Go this way, and if you're not paying attention, I will get your attention. And this is how I will move you along, with my rod or my staff, whichever one you need, okay? And so your, your father is interested because he loves you, Hebrews says, in disciplining you. And that's a good thing. If you weren't disciplined, you, were one, you would wonder if you were one of his children. That if he's not disciplining you, meaning that he, he's not worried about you. You're not one of his. You don't want that. You do want discipline. And you will get difficulty. But the trouble is we can't always tell them apart. So am I being disciplined here now or is this difficulty? Is this their fault or is it my fault? And at the end of the day, here's the thing, it actually doesn't even matter, church. Because the bottom line is you just submit to it and trust the Lord through it and follow where he leads. 
So if it's discipline and you've searched your heart and you found something to confess, by all means, confess. But if you haven't, don't assume you're a bad guy. Just keep going. So accept discipline and difficulty, and this is how you do it. Number one, by not complaining. <laughs> Easier said than done, right? I mean, it's really not that complicated. I think you could make the same list. But here are my practical su- suggestions to apply today's text. Here they are. Number one, don't complain. You know, it's hard. It stinks. Yes. Don't complain. <laughs> it's true. That's part of living in a fallen word, world. You just have to accept that. We're never going to be perfect. And actually, <laughs> Merry Christmas, it only gets worse. <laughs> you know, The older you get, the more you hurt. <laughs> and eventually you stop, and then you're healed. That's the way it works. So accept it. Not complaining, not overreacting. And here's the key, putting aggressively putting an end to the negative downward spiral. Aggressively stop. The way the New Testament says this is put to death. Put to death, therefore, and it gives you this big long list. Kill it. You need to end that spiral of negativity that jumps in your mind at the first thing that goes wrong, that thinks about the next thing, that thinks about the next thing, that thinks about the next thing, and all of a sudden you're down here. You've got to stop. You say, whoa, that's where that's going. Cut it off. Back on track. Here we are. You got to just stop. So then you've ended it, but now you got to sift a little bit because there's still something coming your way. You haven't followed it down the track, but you're saying, wow, uh, is this an attack or is this sharpening? Oh, I don't know. And what you do then is you just honestly and humbly look in the mirror and say, all right, yeah, I struggle with that. Or no, that's probably unfair. That's not true. Somebody's just taking a shot at me right now, and I can let that go under the blood of Christ. No big deal. So you sift. Take an honest and fair approach. Take ownership and responsibility. This is what we want our kids to do, right? Like, (laughs) you're trying to teach responsibility. Well, you guys, don't push this off on your brother. Don't push it off on your sister. Don't blame somebody else. At some point, at some point in the process, please just say, yep, I did that. I'm not going to try to tweak it or redefine it or weasel my way out of it. I'm just going to own it and say, yeah, that was me. Oh, okay. Now we can sit here and stop arguing and get on with our day. (laughs) Let's take care of it. Get a little bit responsible. There's a beautiful prayer that my mom has hanging in her kitchen um, that, you know, it's really one of those things that hangs in your mom's kitchen you don't pay that much attention to. You think, oh, that's cute, crochet, cross-stitch, whatever it is, you know, pretty, frou-frou. But in reality, man, if I could have had this prayer sewn into my heart from day one, I would have been a much better man. I'm still working on it. But let me show you this prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr, an American pastor and theologian. You've probably heard it before. But I think this is a beautiful, beautiful example of what it means to accept discipline and difficulty and yet dwell in deliverance. We haven't talked about the dwelling in deliverance yet. We'll get there in just a minute. But here is this prayer by Mr. Niebuhr. It says this, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. You know, boy, if our society could get there, right? Wow, if I could get there. That's hard. There's just some things I'll never be. Ballerina is one of them. NBA basketball player is another. (laughs) I got to get over that. Hoop dreams are gone, right? Well, that's funny, but there's some that are much more personal that I wouldn't say on stage, and you probably have those too, right? God, 
grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Let's just admit it. You know, there are some things I don't like about myself, and you probably don't like about me either, but it's not a sin issue, it's just a me issue. Lord, give me the courage to change the things I can. There are things I can work on. I may never be great at math. That's not going to happen despite how many courses I take. But I can learn to treat my brother or sister better. I can do this. I can improve here. So God, give me the courage to do that because some of those are scary and I don't want to see them. I don't want to hear them. And they're kind of embarrassing. But Lord, give me some courage. And Lord, give me the wisdom to know the difference because a lot of times I don't. (laughs) Is this the way you made me? Or am I just using that as an excuse to get out of changing? (laughs) Much of the time we say that, it's not actually the case. Sometimes it is. A lot of times it's not. Lord, give me the wisdom to know the difference. Help me, God, to live one day at a time. You know, I think about all the things that go wrong tomorrow, but that's not really the point. I've got to be here today. Lord, help me to live one day at a time. Help me to enjoy each moment and not miss it. Lord, help me to accept hardship. Oh, here it is. As the pathway to peace. This is how we get there, just like Jesus did. Taking the sinful world as it is, I can't really make it not sinful. Not as I would have it, which is always what I think at Christmas time or whatever, and it always falls short. But instead, trusting that you will make everything right. There's my only hope. What is my job then? Simply to surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life. Not supremely happy, but reasonably happy so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. There's a good prayer. That's real. That's honest. That's hopeful. That's accepting hardship. That's accepting discipline. But that's dwelling in the land of deliverance. There's some things I can't change, but Lord, you will. You'll fix this someday. It's already broken now on earth for good. But God, you can fix it. Accept discipline and difficulty that's part one let me give you that example i told you about it's this fellow who cursed david do you ever remember his name does anybody remember this is really super duper bible trivia anybody remember who cursed david shimei s-h-i-m-e-i second samuel 16 verses five through four i'll read the story to you just watch how david david handles it this is a perfect example of doing what I'm trying to tell you to do. David does it. Says this. Um, this is after Absalom's rebellion. So everything's a big mess. This is his son. Wants to kill him and take his throne. Not a good thing. When King David came to Bahurim. There came out a man from the family of the house of Saul. Whose name was Shimei. The son of Gera. And as he came he cursed continually. He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See there, ha, your evil is upon you, you man of blood. Woohoo! Not very nice. I think it's pretty much the worst thing he could think of to say. It sounds tame because it's back then, but this is not nice. Then one of David's men, Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. That'll solve it, right? (laughs) 
There's probably a time you've wanted to do that too. Okay. <laughs> Let me go take off his head. And the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing me, see, I don't know. Is this discipline or is this difficulty? I don't know. If he's cursing me because the Lord has said to him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Maybe I deserve this. Maybe it's discipline. I don't know. And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life, as if that's not enough. How much more may this Benjamite leave him alone? Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. And it may be, now, here's the switch, from discipline and difficulty to deliverance. It just may be, it just may be that the Lord will look on the wrong that is done to me today. If I turn my cheek and say, vengeance is mine, the Lord will repay. And the Lord, oh, there it is. The Lord will repay me with good for cursing today. So David and his men went down the road. They're going on their journey, and this guy's just going after him the whole way. Shimnei went along the hillside opposite and cursed as he went through stones and flung dust. And by the time the king and all the people who were with him arrived at the Jordan, they were weary. <laughs> yeah, and you would be too. You've been heckled by this guy all day long. No one did anything. That's significant. Now, if you read on, you'll find out what happens to this guy later. David keeps his promise. He doesn't do anything, but wait and see. <laughs> Will the Lord avenge? I don't know. Is God just? Read on. So muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Welcome to Christmas. Accept discipline and difficulty, but dwell in deliverance. Part one, accept difficulty. Part two, dwell in deliverance. Now, it's interesting where this starts because there's the siege and then all of a sudden there's the mention of Bethlehem. How does this tiny, I mean, this is not the capital, this is just some podunk town that literally doesn't make it on the Judean map. How does this play in? Well, it names the birthplace of the Messiah. Oh, okay, so just for trivia pursuit, is this a thing? Is this just to prove God knows the future? I mean, it's really cool. He said Bethlehem, and it was Bethlehem. Wow, is that it? There's actually quite a bit more there. The idea of Bethlehem goes back to Boaz and Jesse and David. And what, if you were an Israelite, that would conjure up in your mind is not only the idea of a small town, but also a very special king. Not just a king, but the king. Israel's greatest king. In fact, Israel's greatest king who began not as a king, but instead as a shepherd. You have this really strange combination of a shepherd king. Shepherds who are despised, outcast, dirty, stinky, smelly, uneducated, filthy herdsmen. And the royal family itself. Now originally there's a tribe of Benjamin who is Saul. And you would expect it to come from a good looking dude like him. But who is this young little man from out of nowhere? Oh wait, out of nowhere? Where is he from? Hmm. 1 Samuel 16, 18. Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul, the Benjamite, 
sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me this David, your son, who is with the sheep. And then you know the story from there, I hope, at least from this summer series. Jesse, the house of Olive's son, has a root or a branch or a stem or an offshoot that rises from obscurity to prominence, not because of the amazing David, but because of the amazing God of David. And the idea of the shepherd king begins, and if you follow this, it actually goes through all of Scripture, from Moses leading the children out of Israel to Jesse and David, and then to someday would-be future deliverer. Who is the shepherd king? Who is Psalm 23 all about? Is there a good shepherd who will help me because I'm being disciplined, I'm having difficulty, and I could use a deliverer? The promise of the prophet is that another will arise from the same place, Bethlehem. And so what you have is a movement from the lesser to the greater. From slide 1 Samuel 16, a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, to Micah 5.2, one who is not just from Bethlehem, although he was born there, but instead one whose coming forth is actually from of old, from ancient of days. This is way bigger and better than what we had before. I don't know what this is yet, but there's something special coming because they're both from Bethlehem, yet one goes back to when? I don't know. And it's a beautiful contrast that the prophet is setting up. He's saying, here's the current kings, Hezekiah and his line from Jesse and David. They're really cool, but they failed. Someone's going to strike them on the cheek and they're going to fall. This line, well, these kings, these rulers are not enough. Ultimately, there will come from this line one who will win. And you will move from the present difficulty of the siege that is laid against you to the future deliverance of this eternal king. Now that's pretty cool. Micah 5.1 then in verse 4, sorry, says this, this, this future shepherd king, he will stand and shepherd. Beautiful words. Stand and shepherd. He doesn't turn and run. The wolves are coming. <laughs> he beats him off with a stick and laughs. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell secure. For now he shall be great, not just in that little sliver of Israel, but instead to the ends of the earth. Here's an idea of someone who is a shepherd who had laid down their life for the sheep, one who would stand until the very end in the strength of the Lord. Not my will, but yours. Accepting discipline and difficulty and pain. Not his discipline, actually, but mine. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and his boundaries go far beyond those of King David. It brings in the idea here of Isaiah, of eternal dominion and rule, that the Son of Man will succeed where the Son of Adam failed. That the Son of David has victory where David 
fell. King Jesus descended from the line of David, raised from the dead. Earth and sky flee from his presence. Mountains melt like wax before him. Who is like our God? This is the shepherd king. This is the one that you, O Bethlehem, O world, O ends of the earth, have always been waiting for. He's the perfect example of everything we're talking about today. Accepting discipline, but dwelling in deliverance. How so? Well, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Just like David, remember? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Man of sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place he condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Accepting difficulty. But. Dwelling. In deliverance. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished. Was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. That's deliverance. And look. When he comes our glorious king. All his ransom. Home. He'll bring. No more wishing for home anymore. <laughs> You're there. Then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Dwell in deliverance. Can you do that? It's hard, I know. Well, how do I do that, Pastor Jeremy? I believe it. But I don't know. Here's a couple quick tips in the next couple minutes just to finish it out. Here's some practical ways for you to dwell in deliverance. I would say it like this. Number one is just rejoice even though. <clears throat> rejoice even though. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> well, you know that the difficulty is going to come. You know that discipline will come. You know that things will not always go your way. You know that siege is laid against you. You know that you wrestle not against flesh and blood. You know that. We live in a sinful fallen world and you will be impacted by that. So, if you take the words of the prophet, and if you take the words of the apostle at their face value, then you believe your warfare is ended and you are glorified and you have victory in Jesus. Do you believe that, church? Your warfare is ended, you are glorified, you have victory in Jesus. Done. It is finished. Oh, that's what, yes, that's what Jesus said. Not just, I'm bleeding out, so, whew, glad it's over. No, I mean, it's over. It is finished. So then, when you go into that moment and you know you're going to lose, <laughs> you still say, victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. I know I'm going into a conflict and there's going to be some bad things said against me, like David or like Jesus or like whoever. But I go in having already won. It's done. It's finished. I won. <laughs> yeah, they're... <laughs> Throwing rocks and spitting and kicking dust just like Shimney. It's finished. I win. It's over. I believe that. And so it's really hard, I know, because <clears throat> in the moment you're like, stop, 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 that hurts. I don't like it. you? And you want to fight back. The Bible says don't. Believe in Jesus. Trust in his victory. 
Vengeance is his. Give it up. Dwell in it. This means rejoice even though, and it's actually this simple as saying it inside your head. You hear that conflict going on, you know it's coming, and you just say, victory in Jesus. That's it. You can write that down, church. You want a, you want a formula for successful Christian living when something bad's about to happen to you? You say inside your head, victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. Vic! Victory in Jesus. Okay. You go into it, you get beat up, you come out, you're hurt, you're crying, you're afraid. Victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. Front end and back end. So my recommendation to you is this. In any situation before you go into it, you start and end with the same words. Victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. I want you to go into a situation this week and say three times, victory in Jesus. Once before, once during, and once after. That's it. If you want to do your whole day like that, you can do it too. When you get up, when you go to bed, and sometime in the between. Victory in Jesus. Vic, vic, victory in Jesus. Yeah, I messed up. Yeah, that person was mean. Oh, victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus all the way through. It's finished. He won. This is the hope we have, and I believe the thing the Bible is trying to communicate to us. When we do what the Lord wants, listen, Comfort, comfort my people. You, O Bethlehem, man, siege is laid against you. You, O Midland, siege is laid against you. <laughs> and pretend it's not. Siege is laid against you. But to you will come, not from you, but to you will come one whose going forth is from everlasting. And then you will say to the ends of the earth, Victory in Jesus. Father, we thank you for your victory. <clears throat> you won. There's no stopping you whatsoever. We don't care about anything else. Help us not to desire anything else. Help us not to worry about anything else. Help us not to think about anything else. Help our only true and guiding passion to be for you and your victory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.